I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. The use of telehealth has surged during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the growing use of telehealth is expected to continue even after the crisis settles. Today, I'm speaking with Kane McGladry, who is IEEE Senior Member and Cybersecurity Strategist at Ascent Solutions about cybersecurity risks involving telehealth. So Kane, for starters, kindly describe some of the work that the IEEE has been doing involving telehealth cybersecurity. Are there certain issues that the organization and its members have been examining? I think that broadly, the mission of the IEEE of Advancing Technology for Humanity is really aligned well with cybersecurity and in trying to make sure that individuals and families and organizations, companies, and even nation states understand how they can protect themselves individually or their citizens from the devastating cyber attacks that we've seen increasing throughout the pandemic and certainly accelerating this year by providing information and also by providing input to various public initiatives and uh, contributing wherever possible. Our engineers definitely do contribute to a number of initiatives that might sound a little bit vague, but we work with a lot of organizations that it's a privilege to serve and to provide that commentary and understanding around best practices and also around emerging research for what works and for what does not work. So Kane, what are some of the top security threats and risks that healthcare entities are underestimating as they've been ramping up telehealth services during the COVID-19 pandemic? And as patient care returns to a mix of in-person care, yet at the same time, an increased use of telehealth post-pandemic, what are some of the emerging security concerns? I think telehealth has really been a boon throughout the pandemic for protecting our first responders, our nurses, and our doctors from the pandemic. And moving forward, it's providing those communities which have lower accessibility to healthcare providers the ability to get immediate health advice and guidance from a professional without having to go drive an onerous distance. Having said that, the challenge there, of course, is twofold. I've already mentioned that allows people in underserved communities to get access to health. That presupposes they've got access to the internet at high speed, much in the same way that the pandemic forced us to recognize that broadband is a necessity for public schools to function in a pandemic. Similarly, Having access to the internet is important. And then beyond that, having secure access to the internet so that people can have a confidential consultation with their doctor or with their nurse in a secure fashion. Some of that is the onus is on the provider. And some of that, the responsibility is ultimately on the individual. So if you're going to get on a a video call with a healthcare provider and maybe show them a rash you've got on your arm and get a second opinion, it would be favored if there weren't malware on your computer that was recording your conversation and recording your webcam and recording your stream and then try to extort you at a later date. And so that's one where consumers have the ability through a lot of just commercial software packages to deploy controls around their webcam. But unfortunately, a lot of folks might find that inconvenient that every time you open your webcam, your security program's like, hi there, I see you're trying to use your webcam. I'm going to annoy you. I think that's when one of the software vendors probably could do a better job on user education of the value of that technology. And then on the provider side, that's really where a lot of the onus lies in ensuring that 
those data are being transferred in a secure fashion. So over, you know, I think we all think of the little green lock in our web browser over HTTPS so that it's being sent securely so it can't be intercepted in transmission. But also on the back end, where are those being stored? How are those videos being stored? Or how are those chats being stored? I know that from a, a HIPAA perspective, there certainly are stringent guidelines around the um, storage and processing of those healthcare data. And I think that the healthcare providers really throughout the pandemic have had the opportunity to evaluate which technologies work, which technologies don't work from a practical standpoint. And thankfully, I haven't seen a lot where they've chosen technologies that would be put them in regulatory or security jeopardy, right? Nobody's trying to do their consultations are TikTok. For example, I think everyone's um, chosen platforms like Zoom and like Teams by grown-up adult companies that, you know, they, they sort of know how to do security. Beyond that, I'd say the other challenge that telehealth providers have is really business continuity and disaster recovery procedures. As we've seen, the number of ransomware incidents has only accelerated over the course of the pandemic, and healthcare providers are unfortunately not immune to that. And so if a healthcare provider as a ransomware attack conducted against their organization, that's going to really materially degrade the ability of their uh, organization to provide service to patients. And that could be, for telehealth scenarios, that could be very difficult because if somebody's got an appointment and it's the only way they can make that appointment and the system that is providing that telehealth, the telehealth platform is unavailable because of a ransomware attack, um, that becomes really material really quick to a lot of folks. Now, not so much as if they had to go in, in person for an appointment, whether it's an elective surgery or a non-elective surgery, but still there's definitely a risk there. So Kane, what other critical security controls or technologies should be used with telehealth applications and platforms? Are there certain controls and technologies that are being underutilized? What about you know strong authentication and identity and access management for some of this remote care and telehealth? What do you suggest healthcare entities do better than maybe they're doing right now? And you know, same for the telehealth tech providers themselves. I can think of a couple things just off the top of my head. And one you, you listed there, strong authentication. Having consumers provide a multi-factor authentication to prove their identity when they first connect to a session makes a lot of sense. And the reason why that makes a lot of sense is that it means that even if their password to be compromised or stolen or easily guessable, they can still have a second factor to verify their identity. And I'd prefer those not to be SMS-based authentications, but rather maybe it's an email code that they get sent, or maybe it's a, a push notification that's on an app on their phone, or maybe it's a biometric authentication using their mobile device. That's an easy way to help verify and validate a patient's identity. The other one that comes to mind, and this is, this is funny, I recently got a SMS message from a short code, and I didn't recognize it, and it said, click here to register for your healthcare. And it was the for the local healthcare organization. Never heard of it, never requested it. I was spooked. I was like, I'm, there's no way I can tell if this is phishing or not from a mobile platform, so immediately deleted it. And so I'd say that in initial interactions with patients, healthcare providers should either communicate via postal mail or maybe the providers, the administrators, somebody there should let folks know, hey, we're going to be sending you a code on your mobile device so that you can register for our telehealth platform. Because otherwise, I think a lot of folks are going to look at that and say, I don't know who this is from. I don't trust this. Or worse yet, 
what we've seen is the prevalence of phishing attacks that just really glom onto whatever the trend du jour is. And so if it becomes trendy to send out registration or pre-registration processes via shortcode or via SMS, why wouldn't a threat actor adopt that technique really quickly and start collecting personally identifiable information that they could then use to do all kinds of financial crime against individuals ultimately? And Kane, what about encryption? You mentioned earlier about the transmission, you know, the actual sessions between patients and telehealth providers. Are the technologies pretty solid in terms of automatically encrypting these sessions? Is this something that the healthcare provider then needs to add or worry about? What is the state of that? I'd say that all of the reputable software vendors in this space have encryption deployed. And if you're, if you're using a Microsoft or using an Amazon or using something like Epic, for example, from an industry term, you're probably fine, ultimately. I'd say that those providers beyond encryption what it gets more interesting is who's got access to the encryption keys. And what's more interesting still is who can decrypt those data. Uh, because ultimately encryption is only as good as the person who's holding the key. And so if a patient healthcare provider, if a nurse needs to look at a record associated with somebody's healthcare, that's cool, right? We favored if we could actually track that she had access to that. And most of those platforms can do that. But also there needs to be a ability on the part of the platform to detect and prevent or at least do step-up authentication on anomalous activities. So for example, if a nurse is looking at my healthcare record, like I said, that's fine, that's an expected thing. If the nurse is also logged in from St. Petersburg in Russia, and is looking at my healthcare record, that's probably not okay. I don't, I don't go to Russia. And consequently, that's where you want the platform to have the ability either built in or to have it as part of an add-on to do a second factor authentication and or maybe just in some cases like not allow that because when you get compromised credentials associated with people who have access to those encrypted data, ultimately the encryption is, is not material. I think the other thing that really does matter associated with encryption, just on, on that topic, is that organizations should have um, encrypted offsite backups of all of that patient data. So in the case that they have a bad day and it could be out here on the West Coast, we'd worry about an earthquake or we'd worry about a ransomware attack, probably ransomware is more common, that if you have to restore everything from backup, that you have something that's disconnected from the network, that you have something that's preferably encrypted. So if it's stolen, that it's still not of any material value to whoever stole it. So that you can actually go through the process of restoring from backup rather than looking at, well, do I have to get a decryption key from the threat actor or which is often like a, a violation of sanctions depending on who the threat actor is or how else you can try to restore operations. I think those, the stories that we're seeing now out of like the Irish Health Service or out of other organizations like New Zealand that have undergone ransomware attacks where it reduces patient care because they don't seem to have a great BCP, a business continuity plan. Um, I think that having those backups is essential for an ongoing continuity of business and patient care. And finally, Kane, any emerging telehealth security issues that healthcare entities should be paying more attention to right now? I'd say the interesting thing that came out of the pandemic is a trend was being able to provide mental health assistance to other providers. As people have been working in the pandemic as nurses and other frontline responders, really they've been under a, a continuous state of duress. They've been more affected by this than any other segment of society, I'd posit, as they've seen the day-to-day 
challenges associated with delivering healthcare in a pandemic. And in the course of them delivering that, organizations have started to offer mental health services to their own staff. I think that it's essential that those data be protected and that there be very strict controls around that. Because if you think of the way the threat actor would approach this, being able to access patient data is one thing, and you might be able to monetize that, you might not be able to monetize that, but being able to get access to the mental health records of all the staff at a healthcare system or at an insurance provider or at a hospital, that actually opens up more opportunities for malfeasance along the lines of blackmail that's not something that we have seen a predominant move towards, but that's not to say that it's not a risk. And if a threat actor were to ransomware and extort an organization, that would be even more damaging, I'd say, for those data to be leaked or for those data to be acquired and then used to blackmail the individuals. Thank you, Kane. I've been speaking to Kane McGladry. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.